You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Nicholas Vieter. And my name is Alice Koenig. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. We're sorry for any sound quality issues you encounter in this episode. Our guest's recording equipment wasn't cooperating when we recorded the interview. We really hope it doesn't put you off listening. What Frank has to say is so interesting and so important. Our guest today is Frank Müller. Frank is a Cohn Foundation grantee and leader of the project Peace Videography, and he is project researcher at the Tampere Peace Research Institute, Tampere University, Finland. Frank's work explores the role and function of visual images in wars, conflicts, and post-conflict situations, such as reconciliation and peace processes. So there's a strong affinity with key elements of the Visualizing War project that we will explore in today's podcast. In 2013, Frank published Visual Peace, Images, Spectatorship, and the Politics of Violence with Paul Graf Macmillan, a, and I'm quoting, political analysis of the relationship between visual representations and the politics of violence, both nationally and internationally, with a particular focus on the role of the spectator's involvement. His most recent book, which came out in 2019, also with Paul Graf Macmillan, is called Peace Photography, in which he asks how photography can represent peace and how such representations can contribute to peace. Together with Rasmus Bellmer, also from Tampere University, Frank runs the Project Image and Peace, a platform, as they describe it, for anyone interested in the role of visual culture in peace and peace processes that publishes academic research alongside works of art. And you can check it out on imageandpeace.com. Frank, welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Hello, Nicholas. And hello, Alice. And many thanks for your interest in my work. Frank, just to get us started, looking at your publications and your research interests, I noticed an interesting tension or coexistence of two, at first sight, contradictory themes. So on the one hand, there's a conflict, and on the other, there's peace and its representation. And that's visible also in the title of your book, the first book, which starts with peace and ends with violence. And a few years ago, you also published a programmatic article entitled From Aftermath to Peace, Reflections on a Photography of Peace that challenges the strong, if not exclusive, focus on war and the legacy of violence in academic research. Could you tell us a bit more about these two poles of your work and uh, how they fit together? In peace and conflict research, you see already it's in the, the title of the discipline, both peace and conflict. So in peace and conflict research, Conflict and peace is connected by the question of how to solve conflict without recourse to violence, without the use and threat of use of physical force. Uh, conflict is part of human life, reflecting incompatibilities and limited resources that cannot be prevented, and it should not be prevented, as lots of books in sociological research have shown. Georg Simmel on conflict in the 1920s, for example, Louis Cosa in the 1950s, and many others arguing that without conflict, life would basically be dead and societies wouldn't and couldn't develop. Uh, some conflicts escalate violently, but most conflicts do not. So there is huge constructive potential in conflict when dealt with peacefully, but there is also obviously huge destructive potential in conflict when dealt with violently. 
Thus, the question of how to solve conflict peacefully as part of the wider interest in peace research in the conditions for peace might be most basically the biggest difference to related disciplines such as international relations that historically and also today are very much interested in conditions for war in order to prevent war. Peace research, in contrast, is interested in the conditions for peace and likewise in order to prevent war and to establish stable, lasting peace. And in every peaceful constellation, there is conflict. In every violent conflict, um, there are peaceful episodes. So peace and conflict are not necessarily opposites, but more two sides of the same coin. And these peaceful episodes can be analyzed and they can be visualized. And one such visualization is um, the one you mentioned in your introduction from aftermath of war to the aftermath of war and then beyond the aftermath to peace or whatever comes after the aftermath. So briefly to the relationship between mm. peace and conflict as conceptualized basically in sociological conflict literature. Peace is constructive, it can improve uh, social relations, but it has also potential to be destructive when dealt with violently. So already a lot to think about here for us. I found this particularly interesting, the, the idea of conflict It's not yet violent. I think that's, that's something that we've encountered quite a lot also in, in the interviews that you see quite a lot in television, in films, in literature. The idea that conflict is automatically violent. But here the idea is that conflict can be something that's constructive and that you try to deal with it in such a way that it doesn't become violent. And that's where the peace comes in. Yeah. Exactly. I think that that's a big misunderstanding, not only in the media, but also in part of the academic literature, that conflict is very often equated with violent conflict. But there are many other forms of conflict that don't escalate into violence and when dealt with constructively, they are immensely important for improving social relations within and among groups of people. So one question I've got following up from that, Frank, is what are the particular challenges involved in representing peace and in studying representing peace? So visualizing war in some ways is actually much more straightforward. Fighting is a concrete activity. Violence is something that you can capture in recognizable ways. It leaves visible traces in the landscape on people's ways of life. But how do people represent peace or how do we recognize images of peace? Where and how is peace visible in the world? Everywhere would be the very short reply to your question. <laughs> it, it is everywhere. We understand peace negatively as absence of physical force, a very basic understanding of peace, but also a very useful one. Then the vast majority of photographs are peace photographs because you don't see or they don't show any acts of physical violence. At the same time, we don't normally recognize them as photographs of peace. We talk about them as landscape photographs or city scenes or street photography or portrait uh, photography, but not as peace photography, uh, which means that peace photography is as much a discursive construction as it is a visual one. We have to talk about images in, the term, in terms of peace in order to establish peace photography as a photographic genre in its own right. It's at the same time, of course, a problem almost every photograph is a peace photograph when the whole concept doesn't make any sense anymore because you can't really distinguish peace photography from other photographic genres except those that clearly show physical violence. And I think that's one of the reasons why we very often have the connection to war or violent conflict when we think about peace photography. So there is a connection almost inevitable, I would think, between war and violence 
on the one hand and piece photography on the other hand. Otherwise, if you decouple peace photography from representations of war and violence entirely, you end up with billions of peace photographs and the whole concept would immediately collapse. I was sort of just thinking about why we don't have so much uh, talk about peace and photography, photography discourse, not only in peace research or international studies or security studies, but also in media and communication studies and photography studies. Um, as far as I have checked over the last years, there were only two colleagues who suggested that there should be something like peace photography, a proactive photography of peace, uh, Fred Rich and Stuart Allen, both suggested this in either chapter or an article promised some more engagement with the questions and for their forthcoming work, but haven't done it. I, I don't know about Fred Richen, but I know about Stuart Allen, that he moved his interest from peace photography to uh, social media and citizen photography and didn't have time to pursue the idea of peace photography any further. But even in photography studies, there is a lot of emphasis on the representation of violence and not so much interest in representation of peace. There's obviously a very, very long tradition photography and I think that photojournalism even nowadays derives much of its authority from the history of war photography from the very beginning from Roger Santos through Robert Kepper, Gerda Taro, James Nachtwey, Don McCullen, Susan May Sellers, Dimitri Baltermanns, extremely important photographers who still define what photojournalism should look like and I would like to make clear from the very beginning that my interest in peace photography is not meant at all against war photography. I'm not a big critic of war photography. I meant respect for people who go into war situations and violent conflicts um, to take photographs there because I don't do this. But I wouldn't do it. I have tremendous respect for them and for their work and I think it's extremely important. So peace photography, as I see it, is not a competitor to war photography. But it's an attempt to try to take advantage of all possibilities photography offers. And I think the possibility of peace photography is rather unexplored in the literature, in theory, and in practice. But it's not meant as a critic to our war photography or war photographers. So peace is something then that's visible everywhere potentially. But there are sort of category issues in terms of identifying non-violent photography as peace photography and working out you know how you bring peace photography together into a meaningful tradition that perhaps can then be part of a conversation alongside the tradition of war photography and it sounds as if your work and your interest is in building more of a discourse more of a photographic discourse around peace photography so that we recognize um, and explore it more as much as we do war photography and an idea that perhaps we maybe bring visual analysis into peace discourse a bit more as well. Is that a fair description of what you're trying to do here? You're trying to amplify and focus our attention on peace photography in ways that it hasn't been focused before. That, that's true. And I, I look at photographs as a peace researcher, not as a photography expert or acting photographer. So the the, the basis in social science, political science, international relations, peace research, I think is quite strong in my work. Both books that I published in 2013 and 2019 have been published by Palgrave Macmillan in a series on peace and conflict research, uh, edited by Oliver Richmond from Manchester University. And it's very difficult from a peace research perspective to get entrance into the photographic discourse as it's conducted in photography and media and communication studies. 
There's a lot of talk about interdisciplinary work, but at the end of the day, we still think very strongly in disciplines and within disciplinary boundaries. And it's difficult enough to influence my own discipline, but it's very, very difficult to influence any other disciplines. So beginning a conversation about peace photography from a peace research point of view, that would be an adequate description of what I'm trying to do. And I'm happy to say that I'm not the only one. Uh, I mentioned Fred Richen already, I mentioned Stuart Allen. And I would like to mention at least three other projects that go in the same direction. Uh, one project is uh, the Aftermath Project, which is going on for many years now, publishing, I don't know how many photographic and visual projects on the aftermath of violent conflict. And while quite many of these projects are still dominated by the legacies of war in terms of destruction of landscape, destruction of cities, traumatic memories, there are also many projects focusing on reconstruction and rebuilding and uh, reconciliation. So obviously moving uh, or going on the trajectory from war through its aftermath, through something else. It doesn't necessarily have to be peace already, but it's starting to be decoupled from the preceding wars as the main reference point. It's beyond war, beyond aftermath, and at some point there may be peace. The second project I would like to mention is a thing organized by uh, the Seventh Foundation, of which I don't know much, but they published a book, I think last year, with the title Imagine, Reflections on Peace, where they invited conflict photographers to change their focus from conflict to peace. And uh, some of them do, but most of them in a way get stuck in their more or less traditional way of looking at conflict, but they acknowledge the need for uh, alternative uh, visual approaches. Ron Harvey, for example, a very famous uh, photojournalist, acknowledges the need for visual narratives of peacetime. So, there are at least some photographers whom we associate with conflict representation who see the limits of, of, of representation who want to move beyond violent conflict and war narratives to, as he says, visual narratives of peacetime. And the third thing I would like to mention is that there exists even a global peace photo award. I heard about this only a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't aware of the existence of this award. It's organized by an Austrian publisher focusing on art, art publications together with a Photographische Gesellschaft, Photographic Society, uh, one of the oldest photography societies in the world, according to what they say on their website. And they uh, reward not only a global peace photo, but also, and I find this very interesting, a global children's peace photo award. So there are activities going on. Probably the more you look, the more you go through the internet from website to website, the more you will find, but it's not easy to find. And uh, it is not covered by the media as, for example, the World Press Photo Award is. So there are activities, but they are still very, very much at the margin, both of academic studies and of media attention. I guess that's something that to an extent also chimes with what we've been seeing in our own research, in, in our interviews, yes, often the focus is on conflict, but there's also a growing and noticeable number of people who are interested in post-conflict, beyond conflict, in what happens after 
uh, Frank, could I just circle back for a second to these difficulties of separating peace and conflict and that you, you sort of need conflict in a way to make sure that people recognize a photograph, a visual representation as a peace a photograph. In practice, how would that work? Do you need um, non-visual clues, for example, like texts? This is the landscape that was once destroyed and now it looks like this. Or do you build remnants of the conflict into the photograph? Or do you have sort of a chronological series of photographs that shows the development of a destroyed landscape to a peaceful landscape? How do people deal with this problem? Um, the very traditional way of dealing with this, this problem is to look at, I would say, formal stages in peace negotiations. When a ceasefire is agreed upon and statesmen come together and shake hands and sign a peace treaty or a peace accord and are being photographed at that time by a photojournalist in a staged photo, photo event, well, that's a very traditional way, visually not very interesting. And, of course, we don't know the real meaning of these handshake ceremonies. We remember 1993 or 1994, the Arusha peace treaty uh, between uh, Tutsi and Hutu and Rwanda was followed immediately by genocide. So at, at that time, if you had taken the, there on the internet, there are numerous photographs of this uh, handshaking ceremony. At that time, it might have qualified as a photograph of peace, but half a year later, it would have been rather cynical in light of what came afterwards to refer back to this event as a, as a peace event. I think there are many, many ways, and I've been thinking about this more or less theoretically, conceptually, so I don't, cannot really give you any concrete example uh, of how peace photography could look like. But one way that's being used all the time in war photography, for example, is a negative approach to peace. War is the negative reference point for peace photography, and peace is the positive reference point for war photography. So there is inevitably an intimate relationship between peace and war photography. And war photographers show peace negatively by visualizing its absence. And they do so not to celebrate war. Some might do this, but the vast majority don't. But they do it to show, in Don McCollum's words, simply that war is bad and should be abolished as a way to deal with conflict. Here, then, war photography becomes peace photography. It's not referred to as peace photography, but it has a very strong peace motivation underlying its work. And I remember interviews with Don McCollum where he very strongly disagrees with the idea that he is a war photographer. He says, I'm taking photographs in war, but I'm not interested in war. I'm interested in the civilians who suffered in war. And I want to show that war is bad, that we should deal with conflict in different ways. So in my opinion, Don McCollum is always referred to as a war photographer, is a peace photographer. Mm. So the next form of visual representation, I mentioned this already, Briefly, is this aftermath thing, which has become very, very prominent over the last 10 or 20 years, cultivating a certain form of aesthetics, which was, I think, very convincing in the beginning of aftermath photography, but it has become a bit of a routine. So destroyed landscapes, black and white photography, not much happening or nothing happening. And without knowing the context, it's very difficult to link most aftermath photography to any specific uh, violent episode or, or war. Um, but there are, as I said, uh, endeavors uh, among some organizations to decouple aftermath photography from the preceding war and to go beyond, to focus on rebuilding, to focus on reconstruction, to focus on reconciliation. A very good example is uh, Rineka Dijkstra's work that I quoted in some of my publications. 
a series called Almeriza for the young girl who left uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, during the uh, wars in former Yugoslavia and she moved to Amsterdam. And the photographer accompanied this uh, young girl for, for many, many years and took pictures in uh, regular intervals, documenting how she familiarized herself with the more peaceful environment. It's not a single picture, I think, that would qualify as a piece photograph as long as you don't know the background. But the whole series, the whole development as captured by the photographer is a, a process approach to piece photography that I found quite convincing. But the piece photography, I think, doesn't necessarily have to start in the aftermath. You can also peaceful episodes during conflict and during war that can be photographed and visualized as well. Peace research, the term is everyday peace or day-to-day -day peace or colloquial peace or even minimalist peace, meaning peaceful interaction among individuals and groups of people in times of war. But the continuation of everyday peaceful activities, although there is violence surrounding them, in order to resist the logic on the dynamics of violence, um, this kind of everyday peace dimension can be photographed. Um, it is very often photographed, even by famous photographers like Robert Kappa, who are always reduced in their work to war photography. But they were also immensely interested in the continuation of civilian behavior during war and violence. There's one quote that I found just last week in a publication that has nothing to do, nothing whatsoever, with the subject we are talking about. A book about the legacies of the Russian Revolution. There was one sentence that captures this idea of everyday peace beautifully. And I quote this. I just have added the, the word peaceful to the quotation, but otherwise it's taken from this book about the Russian Revolution. And here the authors say, and I quote, everyday peaceful practices carry with them the possibility to change their own course. And through that, also the context within which they occur. So, Everyday, uh, everyday peace photography would be relevant not only in depicting individual isolated peaceful practices, but there's also a connection between these practices and representations of these practices and the overall context within which these practices occur. I find this a very fascinating idea. How to prove this empirically, I don't know. But I think it's worth the while to think about the relationship between everyday peaceful practices of individuals and groups of people and how these practices can influence and change the overall context within which they occur. Some really interesting things coming out here, Frank. Um, a couple of different things. So you've talked about the difficulty of separating images of war and peace, but the the efforts that are being made in some um, among some people to decouple um, peace from war in representation and reframe aftermath, not simply as ruins and destruction and ongoing suffering, but as a momentum towards peace, a change in new kind of life. So reframing the way in which you look at aftermath potentially, but also very interested in what you were just saying about these kind of these pockets or these islands of peace, peaceful practices, peaceful moments, peaceful experiences within a conflict. And I think you've said in one of your books, images reflect the world, 
in order to change the world, we need to change the images we see. But I think you're also arguing that we need to change how we look at some of the images. So one of our other podcast guests, Rana Ibrahim, an Iraqi artist, has produced lots of amazing art with her Iraqi women art and war group, looking at the everyday experiences, particularly of women during the Iraq conflict. And some of those images are of barbed wire, some of those images are of destruction, but some of them are of a little boy having a bath or the family garden and memories of happier times. I think she sees all of that as war art, um, as part of her experiences of conflict. But one of the things that you're arguing is that what we can do is start to look at some of that as pockets of peace, as peaceful practices that might perhaps build momentum towards bigger, more sustained images and ideas of peace. Is that right? That's right. And it, it's certainly so that what I regard as a peace photograph, other people might regard as a war photograph. Photographs operate on different people differently. So it's very, very difficult to make any general assessment and to say this is a peace photograph. Um, I can say that in my interpretation, this is a peace photograph. This is the way I see it, but I have no idea how you see it. And uh, patterns of interpretation and processes of interpretation are always subjective, reflecting what the person brings with her to the process of interpreting her own history, her own memories, her own socialization, including visual socialization. And that's one of the reasons why I would prefer to talk about peace photographies in plural rather than peace photography in the singular. Um, I suggested this to Fargrave McNone, but they were not very enthusiastic about this idea uh, and argued, well, we talk about war photography also in the singular, although there are different forms of representation of war. So let's keep it analog to war photography and also this photographies in the plural sounds a bit weird. So they didn't like it. But the idea was simply that there are many, many, many different approaches to peace photography. And that's very fascinating because this makes the conversation about this issue so interesting. I think that's something we certainly can also relate to from our work, that it's it's often about opening up different ways of viewing the same text, the same image, the same artifact. That's the key, rather than trying to produce the one definitive way of interpreting a text. I, I was particularly interested in what you were saying about how a picture of a handshake of a peace treaty might actually be part of war photography. I, I was spontaneously thinking of all the representations of Versailles after the First World War, where, you know, the peace treaty is a manifestation of military superiority of, of the victory of, of the Allies over the Germans. So I, I would have spontaneously classified this as war representation rather than peace representation. Conversely, this idea that when you focus on the suffering of war, are we still really justified in seeing this exclusively or mainly as war photography or representations of war? I mean, think about the Iliad, even this suffering in Homer's Iliad is so prominent that there's a good case to make, you know, to, to wonder, is, is this a war epic or is this an epic that's actually about the disasters of war and how important peace is? So there's a lot of really interesting kind of connection points here, I think. Yes, yes, that, that's true. Now that you mentioned the Iliad, you don't even need visual images to peace representations or visual peace representations. One book that I use as a reference in my work is City of God uh, by Paulo Lynch, uh, situated in Rio de Janeiro in the 1970s. 
uh, a long book basically about uh, drug-related violence in the city. But there's one part that I would like to quote briefly uh, where the author has one of his protagonists, a person called Hellraiser, reflect upon peace, surprisingly. And I quote, what is peace? What really is good in life? No one can say there is no peace in a beer at the Bonfim, playing the tambourine, samba school rehearsals, Berenice laughter, joint smoke with friends on Saturday afternoon pickup games. Perhaps peace was in the flight of the birds, the subtlety of the sunflowers swaying in people's gardens and the spinning tops on the ground and the branch of the river always leaving, always returning, the mild autumn cold, and the breeze blowing in. So it's a novel that obviously doesn't have any images, but it evokes immediately images in my mind of peace photography, which I find very, very interesting. When they film out of this book, it was all about violence, of course. So this piece, the peace reflections disappear totally from representation. But here in the book, you have a almost perfect illustration of everyday peace without even a single image, just through language evoking images in the reader's mind, which is one of the reasons why I'm not particularly interested in separating visual culture or visual images from other forms of representation. I'm very much interested in the interplay between different media. Images and language can't be separated from one another anyway, so we have to think about this very tricky relationship, because even when we think about images, we do this in terms of language. We do not reflect upon images through other images mostly, but through language we think about what we see or we talk about like we talk about it now. So we basically address visual culture in terms other than its own. Uh, which is basically problematic, but I guess unavoidable. I think we might dig into that a little bit more, if we may. That quotation you've just read out is another fantastic example of just how intertwined war and peace representations are. The next sentence, he says, all this thinking about peace, all this everyday peace can be interrupted every second by violence. So there's a presence of violence, a threat of violence everywhere, but still there are these, as you said, islands of peace within a violent environment. And let's enjoy them. Let's, let's let us make the best out of it as long as it lasts. Yes. And what I'm picking up here is that we've got this tendency partly to do with strong traditions of war photography, war writing. We've got this tendency, filmmakers, when they translate that book into a film, to focus on the violence and to overlook the pockets of peace. But as you say, if we can notice them and if we can amplify them and bring them out, then that potential peace becomes more powerful. So, Frank, you, you mentioned the interplay between different media, the fact that when we look at images, we're actually using words, whether in our head or whether verbally, um, to analyse them. And, uh, and that's something that the Visualising War Project is very, very interested in, the interplay between different kinds of media, but also the power of different media to affect how people think and feel and behave. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about why you've ended up focusing above all on visual media and on photography in particular. Do you see photography as a more powerful medium than other kinds of representations of peace or war? Maybe tell us a bit more about how you think it connects or interconnects with other media, other representations. I wouldn't want to establish any kind of hierarchy between different forms of representation. So I wouldn't say that images are more powerful than words. Or words are more powerful than images. They overlap anyway all the time. It's very, very difficult to neatly separate the visual element of any media. When you look at architecture, of course it has a visual element. The literature has a visual element. 
even if you look at music, it might have a visual element in the sense that if you listen to a song, some images might pop up in your mind suddenly are intentional or unintentional by the composer, no matter. So separating all these media from one another is a division of labor that I think follows more the organization of universities and the sheer amount of material that we have to deal with. Even if we look only, quotation marks, only at photography, there's so much stuff that we have to read and we have to think about that it's almost impossible to cover, let's say, visual media in its entirety. We have photography, we have film, we have video, we have paintings, we have graffitis, and many other things. We have comics as a very interesting combination of text and images. But all of these separate media produce so much material, so much stuff that we have to take into consideration in our work that merely in terms of workload, it's just impossible to cover all of them. That I ended up basically working on photography is a matter of personal taste, not much more. I think as far as I remember, I've always been interested in photography and the way the world looks in photographs. And after my PhD, which was on an entirely different subject, on uh, perspectives for peaceful change in the Baltic Sea area after the collapse of the Soviet Union, started to look at visual culture as a part of the construction of the world, the discursive construction of the world, where it was acknowledged that discourse does not only reflect the world, but actively constructs the world in a certain way. But discourse at that time was mainly equated with language. And I was one of a couple of people at that time who started to think about the visual ingredients of this discursive construction. And in the current project that, that Rasmus and I are doing, we call this peace videography to show that we are not exclusively interested in photography, also to show that the whole idea of photography is very, very difficult to define in the moment with digitization and all the changes that we are currently facing. And we understand peace videography as an umbrella term for all sorts of visual representations of peace and our personal focus is still on, on, on photography in the project, but we are closely cooperating with Rune Salkman, colleague in Copenhagen, who knows much more about video than we do. So we borrow his expertise a bit and also include him in, in our work and our research. And we have, as part of the project, commissioned artworks from uh, visual artists uh, doing totally different stuff. We have photographers and uh, videographers invited, but also one painter and graffiti artist. The idea is not only to look at photography, but at the same time, there is a certain focus still on photography, reflecting our personal interest and simply the limits of time, energy and funding. Following up on photography in particular, I think one of the things that is peculiar of our times is probably how easy it has become to share photographs with social media, to just disseminate them on Facebook, Instagram, and, and so on and so forth. I could imagine that there are great advantages to this, disseminating images of peace, but there might also be some risks and disadvantages. Where do you see sort of photography in particular in terms of the advantages, but also the challenges as a medium to represent violence and or peace? Big advantages and big challenges are big risks. The advantage, you have already, in a way, answered your own question to some extent by referring to the huge number of people who are image makers nowadays. It's a revolution in image making. Huge number of people producing images, sharing them, interacting with them. This is a profound change, of course, has occurred over the last 20 years or so. It's very often referred to in terms of democracy or photography or in terms of 
emancipation, I would be more bit more cautious. But I would say that photography nowadays is more democratic as it has been before. Many more people contributing to photography, many more people engaging in photography of others, also challenging the rather small group of elite photojournalists who have a monopoly way of the production of war photographs. They don't have this anymore. It's a big challenge for photojournalism as well. So there are lots of possibilities, but there are also lots of risks involved. And one of the risks involved is something that Sheyong Yil, Sandra Shabanovich, on one of the videos that we have published on, on our website, has made very clear. Um, they look at Hong Kong, peaceful demonstrators there last year, I think, or two years ago. And they make clear that the activists there were very, very keen on publishing photographs of their activities on social media. But of course, on social media, it's not only their sympathizers who are looking, but also authorities looking at these images through facial recognition software and identifying the activists. So there is some democratizing potential, maybe some emancipatory potential that there are also dangers. You always have to be aware who is looking. And it's not only your friends, but it's also exactly those against whom you uh, protest. So dangers, yes, and possibilities. Uh, we need much more empirical studies, obviously, um, how social media work in specific cases. But I think there the big problem is the sheer amount of to deal with. It's not the icon anymore. It's just billions of photographs mm -hmm. that you have to deal with somehow. And as long as you don't go into statistical quantitative analysis, it's, it's very tricky methodologically to make any statements about the operation of social media or citizen photographers nowadays. A lot of speculation, a lot of hopes pinned to citizen photography in terms of democratization, in terms of emancipation, in terms of people becoming agents of their own image. But does it happen in fact? And what does it mean precisely in different circumstances is a question that we still have to do much more research on. And I think there must also be an issue, not just of image production, but of image curation. So you mentioned earlier an example of some piece photography, which was not a single image, but that built up through a series of images and, mm -hmm. and became more evident as piece photography because it was part of a series. And of course, you also mentioned photojournalists just there and photojournalists do send back solitary images, but they also sometimes curate exhibitions. We've talked to one on the podcast for example, who's worked for Save the Children and for UNHCR, producing a series of photographs of children in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, impacted by conflict. So I suppose there's a question about which bits of the citizen photography, all of the images that are out there on social media, do end up being amplified. I'm just thinking of the recent Gaza-Israel conflict, lots of citizen photography and videography coming out of that. The news outlets were really, really keen to focus on the images of destruction, on the images of buildings coming down, um, the narratives of loss and suffering and, and death, for obvious reasons, because that was going on. But of course, presumably, and in the middle of all of that, there were still peaceful practices and so on. So I suppose we've got to ask some questions about the networks, the media organisations, the algorithms and so on that perhaps might tend to push certain kinds of citizen photography, certain images on social media more than others. Do you see 
do you see there still being a bias towards images of conflict and violent conflict rather than images of peace? Or do you think that with citizen photography and the era of witness, as it's sometimes called, we might see more everyday images, more pockets of peace, that fuller picture of conflict that has peaceful practices in it? I think you have to, to, you have to make an effort to find these images. They are somewhere, maybe not the most obvious sources, but the single photograph photojournalist submits to The Guardian or whatever uh, journal, but photographers have their own websites, and what they photograph and what they publish on their own websites is at least as interesting as the work that gets published in newspapers. I guess the photography is there, the peace photography is there, the peaceful image or the everyday peace images from, from Gaza are there. It is often said that we are simply overwhelmed by the sheer amount of images nowadays, that we have no way of dealing with this huge number of images. I'm not quite sure if I should believe this. It goes back to the beginning of photography. A couple of years after the beginning of photography, the first critics already said, there are too many images. We don't see the world, just see images. In the 1920s, Barkow, a German cultural critic, wrote about this blizzard of photographs, light of the illustrated magazines that were very popular at that time. He said, we see many things, but we don't perceive them in any meaningful way. We don't understand what we see. We're just overwhelmed by this blizzard of photography. The same has been said 20 years ago and 40 years ago, and now again, that we are overwhelmed by images. The history of photography there have always been many more images produced than any single individual could engage with. So we have to make a choice. How to make this choice? What image is important? What subject is important? On what subject do we want to spend one afternoon going through the internet from one website to the other and see this conflict or whatever it is we're interested in from different angles? To make this choice is very, very difficult. And we don't learn to make this choice. I mean, it's just uh, the, the Peace and Conflict Research and International Studies and Security Studies, how to deal with images is still a very marginalized question, which I think is basically unacceptable given the way our whole perception of the world is dominated by images. And we try to do a little bit against this in our Tampa University master's course on peace mediation and conflict research with a course on visual peace research through the ethics, the aesthetics, and the politics of images. Uh, but that's not the rule. As far as I know, there are only, if at all, a couple of courses worldwide in peace research on visual peace research. And the students were basically very enthusiastic about thinking a bit more about a medium of images that they deal with constantly, uh, most of them without much reflection. But once they start thinking about it, they find it very, very interesting. And most of them came up with rather good ideas and I hope they will continue after the course, when the course was completed. I hope that they will continue along these lines and contribute to our conversation. Just there, we, we just have to look for them. It takes time and effort. So we're coming back to some recurring themes here. One is the importance of analysis of visual media and visual discourses in peace and conflict studies. And the other is this need to be careful spectators and to not simply to be passive recipients of all the images that are perhaps bombarded at us by algorithms and, and media networks and so on, but to go looking for peace in the conflict and to look carefully. And I suppose that brings me to my next question. So peace in your book, Visualizing Peace, you talk about the role of the spectator, how not being a spectator is simply not an option. You can't choose to see something or not. You can only look away once you've already seen it. 
so looking at representations of violence and representations of peace is not a neutral act. It's something that involves you, that implicates you. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit more about that, about the difference between being merely a spectator and being, as you put it, sometimes a participant witness. Yes. Um, when I started writing visual peace, it was meant to be a book about a, a visual peace research agenda. Um, and it ended up as a book about spectatorship, basically. Uh, there's excellent work on spectatorship. Jean, Jacques Rancière's book, uh, Emancipated Spectator, that came out a couple of years before my book, is a very important contribution to this discussion as well. Criticizing the notion that someone looks at only books. I mean, who does it? Who looks at a photograph and does nothing else? There's nothing going on in one's perception, person's mind or another person's perception when looking at images of suffering. Uh, I don't agree with that. And I was introducing in the book, um, as you said, the idea of the participant witness as the person who critically and self-critically reflects upon the conditions depicted in an image, including his or her own involvement in or responsibility for, for these conditions. So it's a self-reflective approach to being a spectator. It's also thinking about how your own subject position relates to it perhaps even depicted in the image. I'm living in Finland, I come from Germany, I live in Finland, I've lived my whole life in Northern Europe, uh, but I'm a spectator and exposed to images of suffering in Africa, Asia, Latin America, reminding me the forms of inequality and exploitation in the North and South context. So there are many, many things going on in my mind when I see these images, and I think it's similar to what other people realize or reflect upon them, they see these images, not only a poor child or a poor woman or a person in pain or suffering, but it's almost immediately the question, what can I do about this? How do I have to respond? I cannot just look and then move on. It's ethically very problematic, even more problematic to say, well, what a beautiful image. I enjoyed looking at this image. Uh, you have to do something. And I cannot cannot impose on other people the way they have to respond because how you respond depends to a very large extent on who you are and what possibilities you have. And my possibilities as a university person who's basically doing nothing else eight hours a day than reflecting on photography are quite different from the possibilities that that, that other people have in different jobs uh, where they don't have the privilege uh, of a long education and time uh, possibility to do the kind of conversation that we are doing now. So I cannot impose any correct way of response on anybody. Um, but I think everybody can respond in some way just by talking, very basic level, talking about what they see in images with their friends, with their family. And again, raising awareness, the old, the old motive for photojournalism, raising awareness in the hope that political consciousness gets improved in a way that has political impact. Of course, my response taken in isolation won't make any difference. But if I think about my response as a part of a collective response of spectators, a huge number of spectators to something they see in images, then even our conversation may have an impact if we understand it as part of overall political response of people acting together across spectators in a visually discursively constructed political world. And you asked me about the impact, the kind of social impact thing that doesn't make any sense from my point of view. 
to discuss social impact of this kind of conversations that we have, we try to influence discursive patterns. This is a long-term thing. There is no immediate uh, result or immediate social impact of what we do. But there is a long-term impact. I'm quite sure about this. Uh, otherwise, I couldn't do this work. And I wouldn't do this work. I'm quite sure there is a long-term impact. And the more people engage in this conversation and this discussion, the greater the impact is. Yes, and that takes us straight into one of the things that the Visualizing War Project is very interested in, and it's an interest that we share with you, which is that feedback loop between narrative and recipient, the different ways in which narratives can influence the way in which recipients, spectators, readers, audiences in general think about things, how they react to things. And I think one of the things that you were saying there kind of struck a chord with me that it's maybe not always the sort of big scale response that's important, but it's the way in which looking at knowing, learning about somebody else's suffering far, far away changes the way in which I think about suffering generally. And maybe I can't do anything about that particular person's suffering in that particular moment. But if I then encounter suffering in my own culture, in my own life, I might react to it differently than I would have reacted had I not previously been exposed to the image, the narrative of that other person suffering far away. Probably, yes. Yes, I would agree. And I would also think that even small-scale responses, they are not necessarily that small. I think about getting back to the situation with the students when we have 10 or 12 or 15 students, and all of them talk to their peers about what they learned or what they have thought thinking about in the course of visual peace research, then we have immediately 100 persons or maybe 150. If they share some of, some of them share some ideas on social media, then we get a very, very, perhaps not exponential growth, but there is a huge number of people who are suddenly involved who are not physically connected to the initial course in any way. So it's small steps, but small steps can get bigger. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I have been very hopeful regarding the students, not so much uh, regarding the academic world. Uh, what we do in academia is always the same. We publish articles and we publish books that are being read by a handful of people who start a discussion. Most of them don't because they're too busy or because they are ultimately interested in other things. Um, to reach out to more popular media is very difficult as well. But I have hope, when I look at the students, I have hope that there something happens in terms of social impact in the short term and in the long term. And we also try to influence the art world. We tried in the ECPR context for some years that we try to invite artists to the annual general conference to talk about politics and the art from their perspective. That was always very difficult for time reasons, for funding reasons. Um, but now with the website, imagineforpeace.com, we have invited uh, Sheyong and Sandra, work I already mentioned briefly. We have invited Shiab Shautori from, from Bangladesh. All three of them are residing in Finland currently, which makes it easier for us. We have invited Anna Katarina Pino from Portugal, Sebastian Schulz from Finland, to move our discussion from the academic world arts and the art world. And all of them said they were very surprised by the idea. I told them was basically that please produce an image of peace. We didn't give them any concrete instructions because we don't want that they start visualizing our understanding of peace. We want them to visualize their own image of peace. They said they've never thought about it. It's very challenging. It's very difficult. And uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned, already published two artworks on the website with two more to follow before the summer break, I hope, in order to start the conversation not only among academic colleagues, but also among or between academics and artists. 
because they seem to be very much interested. The younger generation is interested in the peace question. They are not as cynical as the older generation. Younger people, the Friday for Future generation, they're very, very enthusiastic about the idea of peace. And they deal with images all the time. So why shouldn't they be interested in conversation on peace through images? And as you say, this Image and Peace Hub is, it's a hub for researchers and artists, but also anyone. I think you've got, you, you have an invitation on the website, actually, to participants to contribute, anyone who's interested in the visual representation of peace. And you've really got two questions there. How can peace be visualised? But also, following on from that, how can visual images contribute to peace? How do we build peace with images? And I'm not surprised at you saying that you've got a lot of interest both in artists, perhaps in photographers too, but also in younger generations. It certainly chimes with some of the things that we've encountered on our podcast. So we've, as you were talking earlier about photography raising awareness and perhaps stimulating a response like, what can I do? That really reminded me of the conversations we'd had with a photojournalist earlier in the series, Hugh Kinsella Cunningham, who's very, very interested in creating beautiful images of peaceful pockets, islands of hope in conflict in the DRC, precisely with the aim of stimulating sort of social and political consciousness and hoping that people might go away and, and do something about it. But also we interviewed the founder of the Never Such Innocence project, which gives children and young people a platform to express in art and song and poetry what they think about conflict. But they're moving on in their next competition next year too, asking children and young people to think about paths to peace. Again, that momentum going towards sort of discussions of how you reframe conflict and decouple conflict from war and start to think about peace. It's really fascinating. Can you tell us a bit then about what you are hoping to do? How do we build peace with images? I think in the, in the beginning or at the moment, we are very modest by saying we want to start a conversation on this. Peace photography about this twin question of how can peace be visualised and how can such visualization contribute to peace? I think it's possible to answer the first question. The second question is almost impossible to answer for the very reason that we talked about uh, at the beginning of the conversation, that you never encounter images in isolation. They're always part of a larger cultural and social configuration. And to select the impact of visual image within this larger configuration is methodologically very difficult and probably also not particularly interesting. Uh, so methodologically, it's not easy. Awareness raising, I think, is it's a very important thing. It's, uh, what I quoted in the beginning, that this everyday peace dimension show that there are lots of people, hundreds of people, thousands, millions of people who resist the logic of violence, who resist the dynamics of violence, and who are stubbornly sticking to civil behavior, non-violent behavior, although the world around them collapses and they are exposed to, to violence everywhere. I think that's very encouraging should see this and will make hope also to those who live in similar situations without having the power, without having the energy to continue their everyday life. To show examples of people who cultivate everyday peace regardless of what's going on around them it might help change the overall context in the very long term, but at the same time it might give hope to other people in other parts of the world who now, thanks to the internet, can see these images provided they have access to the internet, which we always take for granted. But of course, there are lots of 
lot large parts in the world where that's not yet possible. To serve as an example that peace is possible, this simple message, peace is possible, is an extremely important message for everybody exposed to, permanently exposed to violence. Right? In Gaza, it goes on for decades, and still we have to insist on the possibility of peace, because what could we do otherwise? I guess that takes us back also to something that we were saying at the beginning, getting people to think about what they're seeing, maybe also think differently about um, what they're seeing, how they approach what they're seeing, how they react to what they're seeing. So education plays a big role here. And what you were saying earlier, also this, well, let's call it the grassroots approach by which the small changes that we make, the small difference that we make in this integrated hall that has artists and it has students and it has spectators and it has academics in it as well, in the long term, then make a difference in terms of attitudes, in terms of ideas, mm. and then also in terms of behavior. Yes, it was, it was part of the idea of the three years project that we're doing currently to open up this discussion also for the public, to have workshops organized mm -hmm. where we invite the artists and discuss with the artists that never met each other their individual approach to peace, to start a conversation with them and among them and also to invite students and the interested public to these workshops, encourage them to interact with the artworks that we published. COVID-19 situation, that was not possible, but I hope that beginning of next year in spring 2022, we will be able to invite all our artists to Connor Foundation headquarters in Helsinki and to start this discussion among artists and then between artists and us as academic researchers and inviting the public and those interested to spread the word about peace photography. Still such an unfamiliar concept. Most people, I guess, will never heard of photography of peace. So there is need to get as many people involved in this discussion as possible. And that's one of the reasons why I'm grateful to you for the conversation, because it gives me the possibility to talk to an audience that I would find difficult to address otherwise. And also certainly to invite the audience also to visit the website, imageandpeace.com. As you said, everybody is invited to participate and to share their thoughts on peace photography and photographies with us through the website. And we are very, very much interested in feedback also to uh, our conversation today. Yes, I think we would absolutely second that and encourage our listeners to go and visit your website, which is fascinating, has a lot of really interesting material there. Frank, we're already talking about the future. So before we let you go, what is next in the pipeline for you? You're probably already working on new research project. And where do you see future opportunities, responsibilities also for academics to, to explore these different ways in which our research can contribute to make a difference? What's next for you? At the moment, honestly, there's not much time to think about anything else than the project we're doing right now, because it's quite ambitious. We are two people in this project, mm -hmm. and we have a rather big agenda, uh, both on the academic side and on the artistic side. Uh, books that you mentioned, visual peace and peace photography, were basically one-person projects. So I mentioned already the video element, moving from photography to video as a related but not identical form of representation. We certainly have to do much more thinking about the question of what digitization means, uh, offering lots of possibilities, but also lots of risks. There are quite many people, especially in security studies, who are very are keenly aware of uh, digitization, context of border control, facial recognition software, and other things. But the whole agenda of peace photography has to be rethought in terms of digitization does it actually mean for us? The multi-sensory experience would be another very interesting thing. We talked about this also in our conversation. How do images relate to other forms of representation, sound, to words, to taste, to smell? 
the art and the senses, peace and the senses would be an interesting thing for a multi-person project probably. And that's the problem. We need funding for this kind of work. And we are very, very grateful to the Conner Foundation, a private institution in Finland that supports science and the art. What comes afterwards, we have interesting questions, um, but it's still an open question. On a more practical level, we are thinking about mediation as part of peace processes and how mediation could benefit from the introduction of uh, visual images. There's a lot of writing and a lot of talk about active listening in the context of mediation, but there's not much thinking about active looking and interacting with people through images. That might have a social impact in the context of mediation if we manage to come up with some, some useful ideas. So there's certainly no lack of ideas. What will be in two years' time or three years' time, I have no idea. I'd love to continue this work. I'm fascinated by it and I think it is important and I couldn't, wouldn't do it otherwise. It certainly is important, Frank. It's been fantastic listening to you talking about it. You've introduced us and our listeners to an incredibly important area of work. As you say, you've got very big agenda um, and there's so much scope for expanding what you do. As, as you've talked about the digitization of images, images becoming data, images being appropriated, misappropriated, but also the potential for a really positive use of images, as you've just mentioned in mediation, in conflict resolution, not just just active listening, but active looking. So I very much hope that you are able to continue this incredibly important work, which, as you say, has potentially very, very long term impacts. And just to reiterate what Frank and Nicholas have said, listeners do go to Frank's website, the www.imageandpeace.com. There are artist portfolios there, so you can see some images of peace and see some of the videography that's starting to be put on the site. And as Frank says, everyone is invited, artists, researchers, and members of the public to share their ideas of peace. And Frank, I think you're interested in blog posts, photo or video essays, artworks, other creative engagements that explore the interplay of images and peace. So Frank, we've really enjoyed visualizing peace with you today and very much hope to continue the conversation in future. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program. I enjoyed our conversation very much. Uh, would like to say that the possibilities of visual culture are endless. So are the possibilities of peace photography. So I would like to invite everybody in the audience to join our conversation and to think about photography of peace. What a perfect way to conclude our interview today. Thank you very much, Frank. I've greatly enjoyed this and I'm certainly starting to think already differently about a text like the Iliad, which like many other people have always kind of classified as a war epic. But if you think about it, there's a lot about peace and of course the brutality of war that uh, that makes us think about this also as a as a peace epic in a way. And that, that's already a very interesting and significant result of our of our conversation today. So thank you, Frank, but also thank you, our listeners, for listening to us. And do tune in again next week when we will be joined by Donatella Della Rata. Donatella is an associate professor of communications and media studies at John Cabot University, Rome. She is a specialist in Arab-speaking media and has lived and worked in Damascus. She has written monographs on Arab media, contributed to Italian and international media outlets. She has experience as a journalist, as a TV author and producer, and she has managed the Arab-speaking community of the international NGU Creative Commons. 
So uh, we'll have a lot of interesting things to talk about with Donatella and we'll hope you'll join us again for our conversation with her next week. Yes, and I think that Donatella's conversation will follow on really fantastically from Frank's diving more into digital media and the way in which media can drive but also potentially resolve conflict. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because it really helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising War, or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening.